Very dramatic, very well read. Um, if you have got your Bibles open, do keep them open. I think it's page 1209 in the church Bibles. Um, it'd be brilliant to have it open as we go through this passage. And as we start, can I add my welcome to Natalie? It's lovely to see many of you here today, this morning. Um, and also, I know some of you are watching online. And it's wonderful to see you here. Um, my name is Felix. If I haven't met you yet already, I'm quite a new addition to the team here at HTC. So if you are new here today and you're feeling kind of a little bit unsettled in your newness, um, don't worry, come and speak to me. I'll be at the back at the end of the service. We can hang out together. Great. Well, let me start uh, by praying for God's help as we look at this passage together. Let me pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for this chance now to hear you speak to us in your word. Might you, Holy Spirit, prepare us. Help us to hear, to understand, and to respond. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I recently watched a video of a man running in a race. And he was winning the race. But something happened before he finished the race. So if you imagine um, this stage is the finish line, okay, and this central aisle is the sort of running route or the running track. So let me just sort of act this out a little bit. So he's running down, he's approaching the finish line, he slows down, he turns to the approving crowd, and he fist pumps the air. You can imagine what happens next. Someone else runs straight past him and beats him and wins the race. So the question is, what did he do wrong? Well, he was so focused on his present reality, winning the race at the front, that he missed out on what is to come. He wasn't looking forward. And today, we continue in our series in Hebrews 11. And the initial readers of the letter are in danger of making the very same mistake. They're in danger of being so focused on their present circumstances, which were difficult, that they're in danger of missing out on looking forward to what is to come. So the writer uh, reminds them of these examples in chapter 11. We've been going through them already. These examples of people earlier in the Bible who have carried on to the end, who finished the race. They've had faith. They've trusted to the end. Today, we are given the kind of daddy of all examples, Abraham. That's kind of why he gets so many verses in our passage. Abraham shows us two simple things in this passage, two things. Number one, in order to trust, look forward we must. In order to trust, look forward we must. And secondly, in order to trust, look to God we must. So firstly, in order to trust, look forward, we must. In Abraham's journey of faith with his wife Sarah, they're looking forward to what God has promised. We kick off with verse 8. It's a summary of a story near the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 12. Abraham is living with his family in a place called Haran. Uh, it's coming up on a map, I think, uh, on the screen. Now, Haran was reportedly near a river and was a comfortable place to live. Sounds a bit like Clapham, perhaps, 
But listen to what happens next. God tells Abraham to leave this place of comfort without even telling him where he's going. Can you imagine it? Imagine getting a call from your boss at work and your boss says, go home, put all the things you uh, own into cardboard boxes, go to school if you have parents, take your children out of school, and then take your family and all your possessions to the airport. And you ask your boss, can I know where we're going? And your boss says, no. At which point I suspect you hang up the phone and you change your job. <laughs> but what does Abraham do? He obeyed and he went. Why did he do it? Because in verse nine we read he had a promise. Now the word promise is a future orientated word. It's a kind of a pledge for what is to come. And it keeps coming up in our passage. You can see uh, on the screen, twice in verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, verse 17. Because remember, in order to trust, look forward, we must. Abraham has been promised land and blessings in the future. So Abraham looks forward and he trusts. He leaves his home and he goes. Not just that, but along with Isaac and Jacob, he lives in a tent in this foreign land. Now that's not a normal thing to do. I've got some friends who, um, they moved out of their house because uh, they were selling their house and um, they were just kind of living in a tent for a while, but it was not sort of long-term plan. They were waiting for something to come, to move into a permanent home. Abraham is the same. Please can everyone look at verse 10. For Abraham was looking forward, remember, in order to trust, look forward, we must. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. In case you're confused, the city with foundations, that's talking about heaven. Abraham was living in a tent in a foreign land because he was looking forward to this ultimate permanent home, heaven. Growing up, I remember being inspired by the story of a guy called C.T. Studd. Here's a picture of him. Now, C.T. Studd, he, was, um, he had a lot going for him. He was born into quite an impressive family. They also had a good dress sense. And he was brilliant at one thing. Brilliant at one thing. He was brilliant at playing cricket. He was a very good cricket player. Uh, he was so good that during the 1880s, so a bit younger than the photo we just saw, he was one of England's greatest cricket players. Even playing in a team that beat the Australians, arch-rivals, in the Ashes. If you're Australian here, you're very welcome. But C.T. Studd was a Christian. And three years after beating the Australians in the Ashes, he wasn't playing cricket. He was in China telling people about Jesus. In a moment, he'd gone from being a kind of celebrity to a nobody. Why did he do it? Well, this is what he says. He says, I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. Like Abraham, 
C.T. Studd was looking forward to the city with foundations, the world to come. In order to trust, look forward, we must. The same was true for Abraham's wife, Sarah, verse 11. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. Here's the extraordinary thing. Sarah was 90 when she gave birth to her first child. 90. Abraham was 100. I was at a 90-year-old birthday party fairly recently. Believe me, the last thing you expect someone to say to the 90-year-old is, congratulations on the birth of your child. So how does it happen? Well, in a sense, it's simple. God promises it's going to happen. After some laughing, Sarah, Abraham, they trust God, and God is faithful to his promise. It is the pattern of this passage. In order to trust, look forward, we must. And the writer of the letter sums it up in verses 13 to 16. All these people, they're living by faith. They don't receive in this life all the things promised to them. So what keeps them running to the finish line? Verse 16 tells us, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. The word longing really means kind of striving, moving towards. So for example, the England women's football team tonight, they're striving to win the Euros in the final. As Christians, we are striving, we're looking forward to heaven, the Christian's real home, the world to come, the ultimate trophy. And yet, and yet, the tragedy of the human race is this. Too often, we look to this world to give us what, in a sense, only the world to come ultimately promises us. I want to tell you about a friend of mine called John. Now, John has been longing for a better country, this better country, the heavenly one, in a sense, all his life. But the problem is, he hasn't looked forward to heaven for it. So this means he's kind of been kind of building heaven on earth for himself. And guess what? Life has been disappointing for him. Everything he's turned to hasn't provided the ultimate satisfaction he craves. Relationships, although good, haven't solved his problem of loneliness. Work, although good, ultimately hasn't fulfilled his inner sense of meaning and purpose. Family, although good, too often has been a place of brokenness and arguments, not a place of safety and security he longs for. Holidays, although good, they haven't ultimately helped him feel that kind of genuine sense of peace. He often sits on a holiday beach thinking he'd rather be somewhere else or be with someone else. John's life could be any one of our lives. Because the world, our culture says, live for now. Have satisfaction now. Have pleasure now. But it can't ultimately deliver. I don't know if you've read um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
Quick show of hands, hands up if you've... Okay, wow, lots of people. Okay, great, I like... Good book, good book. Um, there's a moment in the story, which many of you will know, where Edmund, one of the main characters, Edmund, is eating enchanted Turkish delight. And he sees the Turkish delight, and it looks delicious. It looks kind of satisfying. It looks nourishing. And as he eats it, he realizes it's not satisfying him, and he wants more. The more he eats, the more... He wants of it. It's like sand passing through his fingers. He wants to hold on to the pleasure of eating the Turkish delight, but he can't hold on to it, and so he wants more of it. For my friend John, life feels a bit like that. I guess a good thing for John is that he's only in his 30s. Sadly, for some, it takes longer to sort of work this out, to see it. Some, even never. The midlife crisis is a real thing. But we all know you don't have to be middle-aged to go through that type of crisis. A moment where you think, is this it? Is this, is this what it's all about? Were the sacrifices I made in my work, were they worth it? The relationships, sacrifices there, were they worth it? Is there more to life than this? And so you go and buy a Harley Davidson or join the gym try and get that you know, gym bod that you've been uh, striving for, and then you just kind of make the same mistake again. The author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, he made this famous observation. Um, it's a famous quote. He says this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Abraham knew that. He knew that in order to trust, look forward, we must. There is a better country to come, a heavenly one. Which is why we read in verse 15 in our passage that Abraham and his family were not continually kind of looking back, harking back to the old days. It's so easy to do that though, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever Googled um, the names of people you went to school with or look them up on LinkedIn or Facebook, if you're into that sort of thing. I did it the other day, big mistake. Um, some of my old classmates, so pleased with them, they're riding high, they're doing really well in a sense. But it's so tempting to compare yourself to them. You know, it's so easy to think, ha, huh, life was a bit easier before I followed God to call him. Ha, huh. back then I could have long lions on a Sunday morning before having children. Ha. Huh. Back then, I could go out with whoever I wanted to. Huh. If I wasn't following God, well, maybe by now, I might have settled down. Maybe by now, I might have had, be able to have children. Maybe I might be flying high like my friends from school. But if we're looking back, we're not looking forwards. <laughs> In our passage, Abraham and Co, they're, they're looking forward to the country to come. And so God, in verse 17, is pleased with them. It's a beautiful verse, this. He's not ashamed of them. Abraham shows once again, in order to trust, look forward, we must. Abraham is so future-orientated in his trusting, in his faith, that in verses 17 to 19, we read of a baffling moment in Abraham's life. And can I say, I think it's one of the most baffling stories in the Bible. Abraham, 
has been promised by God that he'd have thousands of descendants, okay? He has to wait around 25 years since that promise, and then around 100, he has his son. It's going well. Good news. But then God says to Abraham, Genesis 22, you have to give up your son. What? What is God playing at? What about the promise? Isaac can't have children if he's dead. What's going on? But check out what Abraham thinks in verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. You see, Abraham knew that if God had promised it, it would happen. And if we read the story in Genesis, we know that he never had to give up his son. The point is, trusting God can be difficult. It can be hard. Our circumstances can make us sometimes think, what's God doing? I kind of had a moment a bit like that recently. It was last week. I heard that one of the kindest, most gentle, most godly men I know died of a brain tumor. That was hard to hear. It was shocking to hear. But in order to trust, look forward, I must. God can even raise the dead. And he says he will in the future because there is heaven to come. One day I will see my friend in heaven and we're gonna spend time together and it is gonna be glorious and it's gonna be lovely and I can't wait. In order to trust, look forward, we must. But secondly, and far more briefly, in order to trust, look to God, we must. We know, don't we, that if someone makes a promise, you need to be able to trust them. We know that, right? In 1890, Victor Lustig was born. Here he is, Victor Lustig. Um, he became one of the most infamous con artists in human history. He's famous, or infamous, for successfully selling the Eiffel Tower twice. Throughout his life, he was swindling people of their money. When Victor Lustig makes a promise to you, you run a mile. And then you probably check your pockets to check he hasn't stolen anything. So what is the response when the God of the whole universe promises you a heavenly home to come? Will you trust him? Is your life showing that? Or are you living for the here and now? Is God prompting you towards something, to do something in your life that reflects the fact that there is an eternity to come? It might be something radical, because you know that there is eternity to come, there is heaven to come. Do we believe it? Do we trust God's promise? In this passage, we see that Abraham and his family, they trusted God. The reason why Abraham left his comfortable home by the river was because God told him to. The reason why he lived in a tent in that foreign land was because God promised a land to come. The reason why Sarah believed she'd have a child aged 90, 90, was because God told her she would. The reason why Abraham and co did not hark back to the old days was because God had given them a brighter future. 
The reason why Abraham was willing to give up his son was because God had promised he'd have descendants through his son. We are told in verse 10, God is the architect and builder of this heavenly city to come. We're told in verse 16, God is the one who has prepared this city for his people. God is named twice as many times as Abraham in this passage. Wow. The emphasis is clear. In order to trust, look to God, we must. God is the real deal. But here's the thing. I suspect Victor Lustig, do you remember Victor? Victor Lustig, the con man, I reckon he would have said the same thing to the people he was conning. So the question is, how do we know that God isn't just another con artist? How do we know he's not Victor Lustig? It's a fair question when someone promises you a lot. I think it'd be fair to say that mealtimes with my son are still a little bit of a battleground uh, with him. When it comes to food, he's a man or boy of simple pleasures. I remember once trying to get him to eat some delicious chocolate brownie for the first time. I thought this would be an easy win, an open goal, low-hanging fruit, I thought. Who doesn't like chocolate brownie? Well, apparently my son. Um, he didn't trust me. I said, it's delicious, have some. He didn't trust me. So what did I do? I took a bite of the chocolate brownie. I then took another bite of the chocolate brownie. I confess, after a few more uh, bites of the chocolate brownie, I then offered it to him. He had seen me do it, and so he knew that he could trust me. When it comes to trusting God, he too acts as a trailblazer. You see, the transcendent God, which is just another way of saying, the, the God who exists outside of his creation, steps into his creation in the form of a man, his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate proof that God is trustworthy. How so? Well, by coming to, by coming to live with us, God shows that he cares for us. He loves us. But not only that, Jesus proves that there is life after death. We read in the Bible that Jesus died on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. He rose to life. And then in front of witnesses, he ascended to heaven. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, all affirm, prove God's trustworthiness. If you don't believe it, have a read of it. Read through the gospel accounts in the Bible. See the evidence for yourself. But Jesus doesn't just kind of affirm our faith. He enables our faith. My son was never going to eat that delicious chocolate brownie, which it was, unless I gave it to him as a gift. We can't receive our future heavenly home unless it's given to us as a gift. But the fact is, and we've already been thinking about it a little bit in this service, we don't, we don't deserve the gift. We are continually unfaithful to God. We are prone to live for created things, money, sex, power. We're prone to ignoring God, rejecting God, neglecting God. And so we don't live for the creator. 
The simple message of the gospel is this. God is faithful to us even though we are not faithful to him. Famous verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Heaven is a gift we don't deserve, but it is given out of love. It's given out of love to those who turn to God and say, in my brokenness, in my unfaithfulness, I just want to trust you. I want in. That's what Abraham did, and we can all do that too. Maybe that's for the hundredth time in our life. Maybe it's for the very first time. In order to trust, look forward, we must. In order to trust, look to God, we must.